Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Let's hear God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that you would grant us wisdom and understanding from your word, and we pray that you would bless your word in our reading and our hearing of your word preached this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Children are an interesting subject, and we live in a time where children run the roost. Uh, Children are largely in charge. In all of the conversations in our society right now, Uh, oftentimes what I hear from the podiums of our government officials as they institute new policies that are restrictive or that change known and established norms, there's always this catchphrase at the end of the statements, it's for the children, and it's for the children. Usually that kind of a statement disgusts me because we know it's not about the children, It's rather about the intention of the politician to enact legislation that agrees with their framework, their worldview, rather than that they somehow have this infinite overflowing well and stream of compassion for children. I don't believe it. But that's what we hear. And if you watch television, oftentimes there are commercials that are that are that are built in such a way that they want the children to be attracted to a particular product or service and then to go to mom and dad and say, this is what I want, mom and dad, then with the purchasing power will provide that for their children. And there is an increasing reality within our economic framework, and that is that little children, young children, represent an economic force in our nation. And so commercials and, and, and marketing is directed toward those children, believing that those children, in fact, carry a, a tremendous amount of economic power. They have spending money, do they not? When I was a young person, I would go to dad and ask for a nickel. And I'm, I'm dating myself. I, I, I just sounded really old right there. But I really did. I, I'd ask for a nickel or maybe a quarter if I was very, very fortunate on any given day. And there was such a thing in my day as penny candy. I don't think it's left anymore, but but I don't think there are any anymore. Most uh, penny candies of our day are now five cents or ten cents or so. But I know that Christine and I, we can we regale you uh, at the lunch this afternoon after worship over the subject of our, our having used to have gone to to the, the penny candy stores, whipping open that brown paper bag and just filling our, our, our uh, filling it up with uh, with our favorite candies or gums or long ropes of gum and all those sorts of things. Uh, we used to enjoy that. Well, now children, they aren't going to the penny candy store. 
They're going into, into Macy's and, and they're going into major stores all on their own with their own little debit cards and are whipping out their wallets with their, with the money mom and dad have given to them. And they represent a, a much bigger slice of our society. But in Jesus' day, children were seen as something as an inconvenience because they were largely useless until such time as they were able to to start helping around a farm, an agrarian society. And so children were seen in Jesus' day as peripheral, as individuals that were would need to remain at the far back portion of the gathered assembly of God's people. They were there to be silent, to not be heard, uh, and they were not uh, taken seriously with regard to their spiritual concerns or needs. And in fact, uh, they were largely uh, ignored by the religious authorities of Jesus' day, with the one exception, and that was that if pious, godly Christian or godly parents would bring their children to a, a known rabbi of the day, the rabbi might in fact bless them in the name of the Lord. And that was a wonderful thing. Well, in Jesus' time, they're still doing that. And so many, it seems, by, by ongoing practice, have been and are bringing to Jesus their children and asking him, will you bless my child? Jesus does much more than that. In Mark chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 19, there are also uh, parallel accounts of the same events. When in fact, uh, there are additions to those uh, this particular event uh, from the writers of Matthew and Mark. There we hear the same story, that Jesus was there and he was blessing these children and the disciples thought to get into the way and say, look, this this is not important work. Again, uh, clarifying exactly what I said a few moments ago, that children were peripheral with regard to their spiritual needs. And they're, they're, they're indignant over this. They say, no, the master has other far more important things to do. And so uh, please keep your children back. Don't bring them for a blessing. Rather, let the, the Lord Jesus heal uh, and teach. That's why he's here. And Jesus is, in fact, according to Mark's gospel, indignant. That word is used. He is he's he's irritated. And says to them, no, don't do that. Rather, allow the children to come unto me. Matthew 19 also, uh, Mark 10 and Matthew 19 are parallel accounts, but there's, I think, another parallel as well in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. A, a different account with a different time and a different story as well. When Jesus is there and the disciples came to Jesus, and they asked him, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, he called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like this little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Well, within our context, there's a comparison here, a comparison between what we heard from last week, and there is the account of the man who stood, the Pharisee, and who didn't really pray, but put on a show of prayer. Oh, Lord, I thank you that I am not like him, and I'm not like them. Look at me and all that I do. In comparison to the man who beat his chest and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
next uh, not next week we'll we'll dwell for a brief time in in the in in the significance of the resurrection of Christ next week but the following week we'll we'll delve further into chapter 18 of Luke's gospel and we'll go in for verse 18 and following and there is a a ruler who asks the Lord Jesus what must I do to inherit eternal life and Jesus will say you know the commandments and he'll recount those commandments and the young man will reply all these things I have kept from my youth there is another example of a man in comparison to the Pharisee who stood before uh, God in prayer supposed prayer saying this is all that I am this is all that I've done look at all of the things that I have done for you and in comparison to this man in this later section, the rich young ruler who says, I've obeyed all of the things you've commanded. So sandwiched in the middle of that is this brief account of little children being brought to Jesus and Jesus saying to his disciples, you have to become like one of them. Not like the Pharisee who said, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like anyone else and look at all the things that qualify me to you stand in your presence. Nor like the man who will, uh, in two weeks from this time, who will say, I've done everything you've ever commanded, and I've done it perfectly. What else must I do to inherit eternal life? And so that, that shows us the significance of what's being said here, and it grounds us in what's being done. Here are these children, and they're compared to the rich young ruler and this Pharisee uh, who preceded in last week. Here's a child not yet capable of faith versus a rich young man capable of faith and yet striving for worldly righteousness, an external trust whose heart will not trust and give up what he has loved most dearly in this world, his wealth. And so this is a very simple passage fixed in the midst of those two stories. And the simplicity is, 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 is almost embarrassing to such who act, to such who approach Jesus Christ and God the Father in, in childlike faith. To such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Or the New, New American Standard says, uh, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. I think verse 14 is very key to our understanding. Jesus is saying, he's speaking to his disciples, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. That clarifies easily for us what's taking place in these few verses 15 through 17. I think verse 25 also adds to the unity of this passage and its context where Jesus is in comparison to not just the man who bragged about himself, but now the rich young man who loves his wealth. He says, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So what we're talking about here is what, what, by, by, by virtue of what and how does an individual enter into the kingdom of God? How is it possible for a person to be saved? <clears throat> what qualifies a man or woman or a child to enter into the favor of the Lord and obtain salvation from him? Now, these children have been brought to Jesus. There's no obvious disease in them. 
We've been praying for a little boy who's been quite ill, and Laura has kept that faith, that need faithfully before us, and we've been praying for him. He's improving little by little with new surgeries and ongoing care and healing. But these parents are not bringing these children simply because of some illness, but rather they're bringing these children to the Lord because they're concerned for their children's spiritual welfare. They're concerned not just for their children's bodies, they're concerned for their children's souls. And that is, in fact, why they brought them. They're concerned for their children's spiritual condition. They're seeking the blessing of God. And this is what they would do traditionally on the Day of Atonement, bringing their child for blessing to uh, the rabbi or a favorite rabbi of the day. The disciples have restrained them, and Jesus is indignant with them, and this is what he says, fundamentally, two aspects of Jesus' rebuke. Let them come and do not prevent them. First and foremost, let the children come, let the parents with those children come to me. And he says, this is what the kingdom of God is. Secondly, whomever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. So as he rebukes the disciples in these parallel accounts, he says, don't prevent them, welcome them, they are welcome to me, and such is what the kingdom of God is made up of. But also, if if you don't have the same similar reception of the kingdom of God, then you're not worthy of it. Now, Jesus also performs three actions as he welcomes these children, and this is identified in in Mark's parallel account. He took them into his arms, each child, he blessed them, and he laid his hands upon them. It's a pretty extraordinary thing. When God tells Aaron in the Old Testament to pronounce the Aaronic blessing over the people of God in Numbers chapter 6, he tells him, Lift up your hands over the people of God. And you do this, and you bless them. And so he is called to bless not all of the surrounding nations, not all of those who are unbelievers and pagan nations around him, but he proclaims, you are to proclaim this blessing over my people. It's an extraordinary thing when a blessing from God is is pronounced upon little children. And make no mistake, Jesus is pronouncing that blessing over little children who are covenant children, who stand in a distinct and different position than those who are outside in the world, whose parents are not believers. Paul tells the church in Corinth, and even to single parents, he says, look, parents who are believing, whose spouses do not believe, he says, they are sanctified. He speaks of his their children Your children are sanctified, set apart unto God by virtue of their relationship to you and your relationship to God as a saved person. It doesn't mean that they are automatically saved. It doesn't mean that immediately their names are written in the Lamb's book of life simply because you've believed. It is necessary that they too believe. We're not talking about baptismal regeneration. We don't believe that either. But they stand in a different position in the economy of the covenant of God. They receive the blessing of growing up in a home that believes and affirms the Lord Jesus Christ. A home that 
at least in some small part, participates in the kingdom of God. A home marked by the word of God, of prayer and of humility before God. A home in which Christ dwells. So as we examine this passage, I want to tell you three things what this passage teaches us this morning. Uh, Firstly, what Jesus teaches us about God. Secondly, what Jesus says to children and to parents. And thirdly, what Jesus says to every disciple of Christ. Let's look at these things together. What Jesus, first of all, teaches us about God. Let children come unto me, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Consider this for a moment. The same God who says this, his word speaks of him, where it says this in Deuteronomy 33, 26, there is none like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to your help and through the skies in his majesty. Deuteronomy 27, the eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he drove out the enemy from before you and said, destroy. Do you hear in these passages two themes? One, the almighty power of God who drives out the enemies of God and destroys the wicked and who dwells in everlasting majesty. And also who comes to the immediate rescue of his people and cares intimately for them. We can hold those things not in direct tension, but in in married reality. God is majestic and high and lifted up and transcendent and almighty in his power and wisdom and justice and glory. While at the same time, he is the he is a hen who hides us in the cleft of his wing. Uh, who takes his wings and puts them over us, and a God who is our strong fortress, a refuge into which we can run, a cleft in the rock for us to hide in. Psalm 139, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, you are there. If I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Psalm 18.35 You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. There is no God like our God. The God of Allah, the gods of the Hindus, uh, the God, uh, the, 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 the ethereal God of Buddhism and the, 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 the spirit of humanity is not anything like God. No human being is anything like God. The God you serve is an incredible combination of both power, majesty, immensity, glory and humility such that we are right to fear him and to walk in godly fear before him all the days of our lives but at the same time he is also near to those who are in need he is meek and lowly gentle of heart and he is there for all those whom he loves he will tend his flock like a shepherd He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. That is the compassionate, empathetic, merciful, sympathetic God we serve. Who is high and holy and lifted up. 
and yet who dwells with the humble and the contrite. We serve this God who is concerned for the weak, the frail, the young, the ignorant, and yet he's the God whose perfections transcend even cosmic proportions. And so in those moments when you think, I am so insignificant, God is not even aware of me. Remember this passage. When you, when you think that you are so insignificant that you can't even approach God in prayer anymore or ask for mercy in those moment, in, in those little circumstances of your life that weigh so heavily upon you, but you, whom you, but, but which you think are so far beyond God's purview or of His concern. Remember passages like this that teach us that Jesus has compassion on the simple and on the needy. And when you think that God will have nothing to do with you because you have sinned against him and you've demonstrated yet again that you are just a foolish child, remember that he loves little children and he loves those who are who are tender and frail and young and ignorant, and he has compassion and mercy upon those who are in need. That's the God we serve, and that's what Jesus teaches us about God. Secondly, what Jesus says to children and their parents, these are just children, they're infant children, such that the parents are holding them, Jesus holds them, touches, blesses them, What do we learn from this? When Jesus says, such is the kingdom of God, of such is the kingdom of God. Well, there are children and infant children at the very seat of Jesus Christ this morning. There are children and infant children in the very arms of Jesus even this day. There are children and infant children, elect of God, who even now are enjoying eternal bliss with their Savior. In Luke 18, 15, little children, infants, uh, very small children is what is in view in this passage. Little children too young to exercise faith, too young to understand their own sinfulness, too young to understand the significance of who Jesus is. And yet Jesus takes them in his hands And he puts his hands upon them, he holds them, and he blesses them. Jesus regards the kingdom of heaven as belonging to children like that, and perhaps them, themselves. Children of believing parents are holy before God, and these parents believed the promises of God for them and their seed, and they are seeking God's blessing upon their little ones. The indisputable point of this passage is that at at the very least that the will of God is that children are to be brought to Christ, encouraged in their love of him, faith encouraged from the earliest stages of their lives, and that children dying in infancy, if they are elect of God, will enter into eternal and everlasting joy and salvation. Not because of anything wrought in themselves, but because of the mercy of God in Jesus Christ.
Jesus is concerned for their salvation. He intends to bless them, and he encourages parents to bring them before him. And he gives hope to every parent who has lost a child before they could ever express faith. Jesus has compassion upon children. We can trust our children to the faithful hands of our Creator. We can trust our children who never saw the breath of day or the light of day or the breath of life. We can entrust them to the Lord, knowing that He will do what is right. And all that He does is good. J.C. Ryle says, let us learn from these verses that the Lord Jesus cares tenderly for the souls of little children. Young as they are, they are not beneath his thought and attention. That mighty heart of his has room for the babe in its cradle as well as the king on his throne. He regards each infant as possessing within its little body an undying principle which will outlive the pyramids of Egypt and see the sun and moon quenched at that last day. And so he cares for their souls. John Calvin says that Jesus embraced children was a testimony that Christ reckoned them in his flock. The story is very useful. It teaches us that Christ does not receive only those who voluntarily come to him out of a holy desire and moved by faith, but also those who may not yet be old enough to realize how much they need his grace. If Christ died for them, Christ died for them. Do they have need of doing anything else other than to recognize that Christ is their Savior once they get to heaven? There are encouragements here for all who are young to seek the Lord, to seek his blessing, to hear his voice. Every little boy, every little girl should come to church on Sundays with an expectation of hearing from Jesus, of hearing his word and taking to heart what they hear. On any given day, they should come and parents should encourage their children to come and learn how to become worshipers of God, how to sit still and how to keep the hands still, how to pay attention and how to process what they've heard and how to take home something from the sermon that will in some way feed their soul. There's encouragements here for the young to pray and to learn how to pray. Parents, are you encouraging your children daily to pray? Are you showing them how to pray? Do they hear you praying? Jesus invites and hears you, no matter how simple your understanding may be, no matter how ignorant your mind may be, and mine is quite ignorant at times. Jesus invites and hears you. There are encouragements here in this passage for all to adopt the compassion of Jesus Christ toward the young, toward the helpless, toward the infirm. There are encouragements to all parents here to bring their little ones to the Savior, to do good for the souls of your children, to care for you. You already care for their bodies. You provide them food throughout the day, three meals most likely, as well as a few appropriate snacks in between. You take them to movies. You give them entertainment. You turn on the television for them. You make sure that they have a bed in which they can sleep, one that is warm enough even in the winter so that they will not freeze. You take them to school. You drive them places that they have an interest in going. You do all sorts of things in providing for their bodies. But are you watching just as carefully over their souls? 
I don't care how old you are. You may be older at this point in your life, and you may say, well, I have children, but they're no longer little ones, and they don't really listen to me anymore. But shouldn't you press in upon them and make every effort to care for their souls? Still, you are a steward. You have been given stewardship of your children. And there is an extent to which each and every single member of this church has watch care over all the children of this church. For when we have baptisms, we, uh, we ask the same question of the congregation. Will you equip, will you assist these parents in raising these little ones in the nurture and admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ? And all of you, to a, to a person, have said, I will. You keep a careful eye over the children's education. You don't fail. Don't don't ultimately fail to care for their souls. Their soul is of far greater importance than their bodies. The parents' great calling is to encourage our little ones to flee from youthful lusts and sins of independence and foolishness and to seek to be obedient children of their heavenly Father. The goal is that when the children leave your home, they don't necessarily fear you, but that they fear God. In 1 Peter 1, verses 14 through 16, it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So your children should leave the home with an intention that they should be holy before God. J.C. Ryle says, Let us draw draw from these verses encouragement to attempt great things, in the religious instruction of our children. Let us begin from their very earliest years to deal with them as having souls to be lost or saved, and let us strive to bring them to Christ. Let us make them acquainted with the Bible as soon as they can understand anything. Let us pray with them and pray for them and teach them to pray for themselves. The seed sown in infancy is often found after many days. Parents, Pray with your children. Read God's word with them. If they're grown and they're outside of your home, be a godly individual. Let godliness shine out of your life. Let your speech to them be, be marked by the word of God. By, be marked by not your emotional reactions, but your kind and gracious sprinkling of the word of God. Let it be truthful Let it be good and edifying, salty, and thus edifying to them. Show the deep importance of keeping careful and close watch over your own spiritual condition. Let them see that you are deeply concerned about your soul and theirs. Are you giving them an example daily to follow? Is the principle of seeking Christ and of his kingdom first And foremost in your life, do your children see in your life that Jesus Christ is Lord? Is this demonstrated in your marital relationship and in the way that you love your spouse and the way that you love your children? Are you building a relationship with your children, discussing the Bible, imparting to them deep thinking about their God? Parents, there's so much work for us to do in in leading our children toward Christ. Are we doing what we can? Are we praying that God would open doors? Are we accomplishing that first ministry that all of us have? Thirdly and finally, what Jesus says to every disciple of Christ. What is Jesus saying here? 
Does this mean that I have to put my finger in my mouth and gaggle like a baby and, 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 and babble along and, and, and act like a simpleton? No, that's not what the passage is saying. Some take the passage to mean that all of us need to have greater humility. And that, that is true. Pride certainly is a, an egregious sin that affects, I think, all of us in some sense. But I don't, I don't believe that's what the passage really here is about. Although it, it, it involves humility, it's not the primary focus. Some would say, well, what we need to hear and what Jesus is saying is that what we need is childlike faith. We don't need to equip, we don't need to fill up our head with all sorts of other deep theological concepts. What we need to have is to thrust all of that side uh, outside of ourselves, have nothing to do with organized religion, and let's let's not necessarily even take up the word of God. Just just have childlike faith in Jesus. That's not what this passage is saying either. Because children, though capable of, of faith, can believe quite deeply. And if you think humility is the issue, well, children don't tend to be all that humble, do they? Children have a way of speaking highly of their own accomplishments. And I don't think those are really what, what's in view in this passage. Let's, let's get some contextual help. The Pharisee, you remember him, who didn't pray, but rather told God about all of the qualifications about himself. The man who beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. The rich young ruler in the following section we'll look at in two weeks, who believes that he's done all that he can do to merit eternal life. And yet Jesus says, no, you must become like a child to enter the kingdom of God. Little children do not have the privileges, the abilities, the meritorious presumption of those adult men. No claims of status or of merit. Little children are not making any claims about themselves. We have to think of the helplessness of a child. So many things that they cannot do, but it must be done for them. Mothers and fathers must feed them and show them how to pick up a, a spoon or a fork and how to take their plate and hold it in front of them and how to take not more than what can they can take into their mouths in any given moment and how to sip from a cup in such a way that it doesn't pour all over them. How to go potty and how to get in bed at the right time and how to get dressed in the morning and put on their shoes and how to interact with other people. Parents, if you're not teaching your children how to interact with adults, then really you need to. So many children simply cannot converse with adults because their parents don't take seriously their training as children to grow up, to give an appropriate address to an adult. So many life lessons we have to teach our children, don't we? Isn't it true one could say that the parent does just about everything for the child? And all the child has to do is believe in the parent that they will, in fact, do what's needed and believe that what the parent wants them to do will not be harmful to them. In similar fashion, similar fashion, the condition of the believer is such that we conclude that all that we need and all that we must do and all that we must have comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And as children, we storm the kingdom of heaven, as it were, and take it by storm, to use Jesus' own phrase, by simply acknowledging 
Nothing I can do can in any way merit eternal life. But Jesus Christ has done what I cannot. And so in faith, I believe in Jesus Christ. Isn't that really what's in view in the passage here this morning? Not that we would in any way take pride in our own childlike faith, or that we would take pride in our inestimable humility, but rather take note of this fact that we have believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have believed not just that he has saved us from our sins, but that he has accomplished a righteousness that we cannot accomplish ourselves. That we can't bring a single thing in our hands except to cling to the cross of Jesus Christ. We are helpless children, are we not? I think every believer comes to that conclusion. I am a helpless child. I cannot perform what God has commanded and what God's justice demands of every human being. And so I must accept what my gracious Father has provided for me in my greater brother, in his eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. All who would enter the kingdom of God would enjoy his salvation must do so by the merits of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. Entrance into the kingdom of God is through accepting the idea, the only appropriate conclusion, that you cannot do what God has commanded and that he has done and what he will do for you, you could never do for yourself. By grace alone, he promises salvation. By works of the law, no person will be justified. Jesus' death has brought salvation to you who have received him by faith. In his righteousness and by his stripes you have been healed. If anyone be, would be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, let him learn this fact. If, if you would enter into the kingdom of God, you must first humble yourself like this child. For such the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. May God enable us to believe and to trust in his eternal son. And in him alone, let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we are thankful for passages like this this morning that remind us that we stand by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ alone before you this morning. And not by virtue of anything that we have done. We cannot plead any other thing than Christ and his righteousness. We cannot claim that we have accomplished anything that even even some smallest measure that will in any way place a claim upon you that we have a right to become a child of God or that we have a right of entrance into the kingdom of God. Oh Lord, I pray that you would help us to uh, to take up the countenance of a child in following Jesus, simply by recognizing that we serve a great God and Father who has done for us what we are helpless to do. And in our great helplessness, Christ has died for us and has accomplished a righteousness imputed to us, not our own, but brought to in effect in his perfect ministry and his perfect obedience and in his perfect death. 
We thank you for the righteousness of Christ. Now help us as children to humbly accept what you, O God, have done. We ask, O God, that you would help us to learn of you, that you are an extraordinary and matchless God and a a God who dwells in everlasting majesty and glory and yet who is near to the simple and the brokenhearted. Lead us as parents to train up our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Help us to train up our children in such a way that they will not depart from it. We pray, O God, that you would help us to put a godly example before them. We thank you for all these things that Jesus has spoken to us from his word this morning and all the instruction that he gave his disciples as he encouraged the little children to come and as he encouraged his people to become like little children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you take up your bulletin and we'll sing together 325, all glory, laud, and honor. We'll stand together and sing. you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory majesty dominion and authority before all time and now and forever amen